Listener Production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer and the host, most importantly today, of The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff and the real stuff, which is the aim of our little podcast. We're going to bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Now, speaking of making things happen, I, as you know by now, am an investor by trade, uh, as well as uh, as well as privately, uh, and there is a lot going on in the investment space, both in terms of the volatility of the market, but also the way money is being, well, raised, shares are being bought and sold. It is a really, really interesting, fascinating and exciting time to be an investor and have plenty of options available to us. And speaking of which... Today's guest is the co-founder of Birchall. It is a crowdfunding platform, one of the really big innovations over the past few years. Matt Vitale, welcome to The Good Oil. Thanks for having me, Scott. Great to be here. Mate, I really appreciate you joining us. There is so much going on. Let's, look, let's just kick this off. I Crowdfunding is a term that everyone kind of thinks they probably know, or maybe not, um, but it's also one of those terms that can mean almost anything to almost anybody. Um, right now, people have got some version of GoFundMe pages in their head. Maybe they're thinking about Reddit and GameStop and uh, the, the stuff that's been played over there. You know, the crowd, the socials, the, or, yeah, so much going on in this space. So rather than me try and guess, rather than our listeners try and guess, what, at least from Birchall's perspective, Matt, is crowdfunding? Talking about Birchall, what we do is equity crowdfunding, which is a subset of of crowdfunding. So crowdfunding, um, you know, you mentioned a few what I would describe as reward crowdfunding platforms, GoFundMe, Kickstarter, uh, possible a bit closer to home, um, things like that. And reward crowdfunding, someone's uh, advancing money and they'll typically get something nominal in return and they're usually funding a, pro- a, a project or a cause or something like that. What we do is a bit different. It's equity crowdfunding. So it's essentially an offer of securities that's done online, available to resale, retail and wholesale investors. But the difference is that people get a share in the company uh, that they're backing and it's a new way to invest and uh, the first time that startups and early stage um, uh, SMEs have been offered as an asset class available to retail investors at scale. So you're right. I mean, you know, on one hand, you've got the GoFundMe. On the other hand, you've got a regular, old-fashioned, traditional, call it what you want, uh, IPO, initial public offering or share market float, uh, where, and we all know, a lot of us know, the whole prospectus, the, the really chunky document, you know, my company's listed on the ASX, that's at one end. The other end, as you say, is, you know, um, help, help a kid get a bike or, or you know, pay for, pay for medical treatment. Um, this is increasingly, though, a really, really exciting, interesting part of the, the story. But before we get into that, I want to rewind a little bit. Tell me the Matt Vitali story. How do you end up co-founding Virtual? It's a it's a great question. And um, look, I've always been interested in business. Uh, I worked as a lawyer for a few years. Um, I think my realization, though, was the reason why I became a lawyer was because I'd started a few things, you know, straight out of school and was quite entrepreneurial. My, my, my dad's a chef, a restaurateur. So, you know, my head was kind of wired that way, but always wanted to be um, creating things and starting things, but realized very quickly that uh, there was a lot that I didn't know. And I, I needed the, the professional backing, I suppose, or, um, you know, I, I just realized that there was a lot that, uh, that I needed to learn. And, 
my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, um, was studying law and I attended her admission ceremony. So once you've finished your articles as a lawyer, you go to the Supreme Court and someone vouches for you, says, you know, this person's okay, you can give them a practicing certificate and, and so on. Um, I was quite moved by that ceremony and uh, I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do, but I kind of came away from that and then um, just decided to, you know, hit the books, get back to uni and do a law degree. Um, so I worked in private practice uh, at a couple of firms and uh, was working in ma- mainly financial services, regulatory and corporate work. Um and was observing what was happening in terms of equity crowdfunding overseas. The UK's got a very mature industry and kind of saw that this is something that Australia should have. So got involved in, you know, the the consultations and things like that. And um, one thing led to another and, yeah, Birchall was born. Nice. Almost back to where you started, I suppose. The entrepreneurial bent really kind of – was it always something you thought you would do? I mean, take me to the first couple of years of law. Are you thinking – you know what, this law thing's good, this is my career, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, you know, at, at 65, I'll be sitting on a bench somewhere or, uh, or, or, or donning the gown and wig. Uh, or was it always kind of something of, you know, was entrepreneurial kind of fire still burning somewhere? How, how were you thinking before the kind of idea of virtual specifically came up? Was it always something you had to get back to? Yeah, look, I, I think studying law is quite demanding and very competitive. Um, and, you know, you've, you've got to get good marks when you're at uni. And why, why is that important? Because then you want to get a job somewhere and, and that's super competitive. And then once you kind of get into that environment, there's just, you know, all of this structure and politics and all of these things that, um, and, and, and that, that's, a, that's a path that, that some people take and it appeals to, to lots of people. Um, I think the, yeah, the, the, the driving force for me was just my wife and I started having children and I was kind of looking around and I just didn't see, uh, a long-term career in private practice as compatible with the kind of life that I wanted to build, um, back at home. Um, so I was looking for other things to do. There's another kind con- another story, perhaps a story for another time. My wife and I, uh, <laughs> ran a, a food festival for a few years as, oh, okay. as a side gig. That's cool. Um, yeah, it was. Um, it was really demanding, and yeah. uh, but but you know, I got a lot of really well, good experience. <laughs> That's a hard yeah. ask. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. It was a difficult time, but really, really rewarding. Um, and I gained a lot of experience that has been really relevant to uh, to starting virtual. Um, just in terms of you know project management, dealing with the media, building a brand, and things like that. But also. Um, experiencing firsthand a lot of the challenges that uh, that founders face. And I've got to say, that's probably the thing that I've loved the most through starting this business is, you know, for the first time I've found a business where I, I, I'm truly energized on a daily basis from the founders that I meet and hearing the challenges that they face and us being able to provide them um, really, you know, assistance at a critical funding moment so they can get the capital they need to execute their plans. That's super cool. Um, I will get back to virtual in a second. I, I want a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs or or business people or maybe interested in the space in general. I wonder if you could take me back to that those conversations. So, at some point, you're doing law, you're working in financial services regulation. Life is just life, and all of a sudden, something happens. Either you have a conversation with someone, or you have an idea, or and this thing starts to germinate. And then a lot of us have ideas. A lot of us say, oh, "Wouldn't it be great if we could do X?" Or I'd love to do Y one day. You go from, hey, I've got this career in law. I, I hope it was reasonably well paid at least or you can see a path to success. Um, and then that, this thing starts kind of germinating your brain, as I said. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually, you say, I've got to give this a go. 
that's something I think for a lot of people are saying, oh, that's me, absolutely. Others of us, I'll put myself in the same camp. I'd love to do something like that. I don't know if I ever will. I don't know if I've got that that bit of my brain that says, I'm just going to throw it all in and go and do this thing because I can't not do it. Can you can you take us through the, the thought process from that very first idea of, I don't know if it was a conversation you had with someone or they had with you through to, I don't know, through to, yep, sorry, boss, I'm out of here. Here's my, here's my letter. Um, I'm going to go and work in a, you know, maybe the, the stereotypical startup and, and try and make my fortune. What is, what is that journey like for you, Matt? Yeah, I guess I probably do need to tell you a little bit about the food festival that we ran because <laughs> I, it, can't, I can't answer this question without, <laughs> honestly, without talking about that. Awesome. But um, look, I, I think entrepreneurialism is in my blood. It's kind of how I'm wired. I'm always thinking about, you know, opportunities and ideas and um, the way, you know, ways that I think the world can be improved or, um, yeah, things like that. So, um, my wife and I entered a, a competition as part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival a few years ago. It was a competitive American barbecue cook-off and, um, okay. and we won. And, hey, well done. Uh, yeah, it was great. Um, it was the first time, it was kind of small, first time something like this had been organized. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I, you know, I was still working as a lawyer then, so this is something I was just kind of doing on the weekends. And as I said, my dad's a chef, so, you know, always yeah. playing around the backyard, cooking barbecues and whatnot. Um, That's awesome. We got an invitation to compete at the World Championships of Barbecue. Um, at <laughs> Who the knew Jack that was Daniels. a thing? <laughs> Who knew it was a thing? There That's right. Go. So um, so I can say that I have represented my country uh, for competitive barbecue. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so we went to Lynchburg, Tennessee, the Jack Daniels Distillery, and it's an invitational contest. So it's like the Masters of Golf. Um, wow, you know, you've yeah. got to win something to get there and be yeah. invited. Yeah. Um, and then we got talking with the uh, the officiating body for competitive barbecue in the States <laughs> called the Kansas City Barbecue Society. And um, they, they were just telling us how they had an international outreach program and they wanted to um, – come to Australia and organize a contest. Um, my wife and I never looked at each other at the outset and said, let's organize a national food <laughs> festival. But that's kind of where it ended up. You know, yeah. there was just a series of opportunities that were brought to us that just seemed, you know, too too good to pass up. Hmm. Um, I think this was probably a discipline that I've learned. You know, look, we ended up organizing events all around the country, Crown Casino um, in Perth, you know, um, out, out at Burstwood, like there's just so many great, uh, you know, experiences and great friendships that we'd started through that. But all of this while I was kind of working as, as a lawyer as well. So at, at some point I, I just said, look, I, I need to, I need to stop this. I need to see where this goes. And, um, you know, I, I just couldn't see myself in private practice long-term. I was taking some contract work as, as a lawyer and and I think this is the thing. Often people ask this question: At what point do you jump all in? And um, I, I you know I'm I do think you need to hedge your bets, particularly if you're starting to have kids, and you know, and and it can be really demanding. But at some point, you know when it's right. Well, you know when actually I need to stop doing this and I need to start de- devoting more time to that. So I probably wouldn't advocate for people to throw caution to the wind and just kind of, you know, make these really rash decisions. I think like anything, you need to kind of get in there and 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 um, just, you know, make sure that you're taking care of the day-to-day, work hard before and after your daily commitments until, you, you know, it feels right and you're like, actually, my time is better invested in, in this 
adventure um, than than the other thing. And look, just to kind of you know close that out, we after a few years, um, we my wife and I just kind of looked at each other and we said, look, th- this has gotten out of control in a good way, but you know we just <laughs> yeah, didn't really see ourselves as event organisers long term. And okay, and then Alan, um, my business partner in uh, Birchall, and I started to- talking about. Um, uh, equity crowdfunding and the opportunity that that presented. It looked like the legislation was going to pass. Um, so, so yeah, then I kind of shifted my focus to to that and, um, yeah, we're, we're not running uh, barbecue festivals anymore. <laughs> so, so Birchall's Gain is Australia, Australian barbecuing glory's loss. Is that what you're saying? You've, you've, you've missed the opportunity to, uh, to take Australia to the top of the pops uh, by running Birchall. Is that what we had to give up to, to get Birchall? I still spend a lot of time around the barbecue in the backyard. Just, never say just never. Do it professionally, could, it's a labour of love. <laughs> there so. could be a comeback. I'm, I'm sensing a comeback. Maybe you never, never officially retired from from competitive barbecuing. Uh, Matt, Matt, let's let's go to virtual then because um, that's how you that's how you get from that space. And it's a it's a great story. I love the um, the, the the pivot and also just the idea of kind of not giving up everything and, and slowly making your way into something that that seems to work and devoting more and more time to it. Who are the people who are uh, accessing crowdfunding as as businesses, as founders, startups, capital raise, you know, fu- growth funding, and who are the investors? It obviously sits somewhere between angel investing and the mum and dad funding and the ASX. Uh, there is a there is a need, obviously, hundred million dollar need so far at least for this sort of stuff. Um, what, what's the what's the natural sweet spot for crowdfunding in Australia? The businesses that we think crowdfunding is perfectly suited for are businesses that have a, a story to tell. You know, we're variously described as having a strong consumer proposition, and um, you know, businesses that will benefit from having a large uh, audience of investors. Um, so we get some companies that come to us, and they're really uncomfortable with, um, I suppose, the transparency that a, a public raise might require, and um, we 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 just say, look, th- this this is not for everyone. But if you can accept that, lean into that, see the benefits and the advantages of you know telling your story to a broad audience and having a large community of people that are invested in your success, but that you're also accountable to, then um, there are you know significant benefits that can be gained. And these are the businesses that do well, the businesses that really lean into that. Lots of people think that, you know, it's about products or services to an end consumer or craft brewers. We've done lots of craft brewery races. <laughs> which cra- that, when you said strong consumer proposition on lots of fans, I thought, you know what, that sounds like craft brewing to me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, um, That's awesome. And look, we've been able to help lots of craft breweries and that's great being able to support that movement in Australia, you know, for, for independent brewing. They're capital intensive businesses, so they do have a big capital need and people do love being involved in these types of businesses. But you know, we've also done lots of offers for businesses that don't have a product or service to an end consumer. Um, C-Bin Project is, you know, one of many examples. It's, you know, a bin sits in the water, collects waste plastic. It's public infrastructure. It's like buying a street light. You, you or I would not buy one, but people care about what they're trying to do. They're trying to clean up the world's oceans. Um, and it's a good investment. You know, it, it, it stacks up. And if they execute well, it will be valuable. So, um, it's people, it's companies finding their audience and then kind of drawing strength from that in it, over and above the capital. Nice. I, I guess that's part of the crowdfunding opportunity, I guess, is those loyal, uh, I say sometimes users, sometimes, uh, I say with that story to tell, it feels to me like 
if I was going to try and uh, create a, a new industrial uh, adhesive, I'm probably not going to use crowdfunding. Maybe I am. Uh, it sounds like something that needs to be actually a story to tell. And this is almost gets back to the Kickstarter idea of that that kind of here's a cool product. You can either buy it on Kickstarter uh, or you could potentially you know invest in it during a, in, in some sort of crowd campaign. Is that is that a close enough sense of the sort of companies that tend to raise and the sort of people who tend to be invested in them? Uh the, the companies that that would be suited uh, for Kickstarter is I, I'm not necessarily. I'm just I'm thinking about that kind of dynamic of 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 that those sort of businesses, those sort of investors slash users. Um, I I would assume I don't know. I would assume the average investment's relatively small per person, but a large number of investors. Um, so d- d- it just it just struck me that there would be there'd be a nice overlap those those two the Venn diagram of people who you know might might buy something Kickstarter and might uh, invest in you know a company through virtual and and similarly companies that are are likely to do both feels like a a pretty nice match or am I misunderstanding it entirely? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, that's the shortcut, right? For us, when we're figuring out like who might be interested in your business as an investment opportunity, we ask companies like, well, who are your customers? What do they look like? What are they interested in? Um, and it, look, it's not it, it's not a revolutionary concept. You know, look at some of the most celebrated investors in the world, you know, uh, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, you know, they're, they're, they're the same thing. It's, you know, investing in businesses that you understand, products that you use. Um, it's uh, It's been a really successful strategy for, for lots of investors. So it, it kind of makes sense that it works in this space too. Mate, tell me about the, the, the then what. So obviously the crowdfunding idea, uh, I'll, 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 I'll use the stereotype and, and, and feel free to throw another example in. I'm a craft brewer and I, and I want to raise some money or I'm a, I'm a craft book customer and I, I see through social media or something else, hey, this, this thing's growing. I love their beer or they're, they're in my neighborhood or um, I've heard from a mate that I, of a mate that, you know, these things are great, whatever it is. And I think, cool, that, that sounds really good. And the craft brewer was like, well, I've got to, I've got to upgrade the facilities and I'm, I, you know, I'm going to grow and I need that capital. So here's a, here's a match. Virtual facilitates that. Um, firstly, I guess, mate, talk me through what's the, the process of that actual raising from both ends. If, if I'm a business looking to raise some money using virtual or if I'm an investor saying virtual sounds like an option for me, at least to have an interest and maybe, maybe take a bit of a, um, an investment in some of these startups, what's the process of going from interesting idea through to completing a, a crowdfund offer? Great question. Um, and look, the process is about nine to 12 weeks end to end and there's three phases, which I'll take you through in a moment. But before I before I do, yeah, I, I, I yeah. might just talk about a couple of the game changes that have um, taken place that allow us to do what we do. So, you know, raising capital through a public offer of securities um, has been traditionally a, a highly regulated, typically very expensive process and only available to public companies. Um Proprietary limited companies uh, previously couldn't have more than 50 shareholders. That changed uh, in 2018 when the crowdfunding regime started. So basically anyone that acquires their shares through a crowdfunding offer in Australia is excluded for the purpose of that test. So we've got proprietary limited companies that have quite literally thousands of investors. That's the first game changer. The second is Um, these companies can advertise their offers online using digital advertising, any medium provided they include a short risk warning. Um, Whereas previously, if you're raising capital in an unregulated way, not as a public company, you couldn't really tell anyone about it. You know, you're really just, you know, telling your family and friends. So, I mean, that, that kind of highlights the difficulty that small business and startups have had with raising capital from the public because they haven't been able to tell anyone about it. 
Um, so those two things changed. We really lean into that, the, the, the ability to use digital advertising to build an audience of interested investors and our process um, mirrors that. So the virtual platform includes the ability for a company to create a profile. Um, that It'll take probably two to three weeks for us to kind of go through, set up with a the company. They, they prepare a campaign video, which is a really important element. It's, it, you know, introduces the founders and the idea at a high level uh, and then all of the marketing collateral and kind of agreeing the digital marketing plan. Then we get into what we call the expression of interest campaign. So at this point, there's just high-level information about the company that's available, um, no information about the, the financials or, or the terms of the offer itself. It's just kind of getting to know you type information. And then we execute that campaign over two to three weeks with digital advertising. We ask people to express interest to invest. Now, it's a non-binding indication of interest. People say why they're interested in the company. We get their contact details, but importantly, how much they'd be willing to invest. Now, this is really useful because we've run all of the campaigns to the same process. So, we're able to give a company, you know, an indication of how much demand is out there for their offer. And then the company will decide whether to proceed to the next stage, which is the offer itself. Now, while this is going, they're working on their offer document. So, this is a requirement of the regime is that all companies prepare a prospectus-like document, a CSF offer document. Now, this is a cut-down version of a prospectus. It's a very achievable document for most companies to prepare. But importantly, it's it, it prepared to the retail standard. So, ASIC has stop-order powers. They don't review these documents. That's the role of an intermediary like Birchall. But what it's done is brought some transparency, accountability, and standardization to what has previously been a pretty opaque process. Now, I'm not sure, Scott, if you kind of get pitched ideas and IMs, unregulated IMs. Now, there are good ones, there are bad ones, but there's no kind of standard form. And this has been kind of, you know, um, this part of the uh, investment landscape has been crying out for, for regulation for a long time. So there's a lot involved in that, but I understand it, it, it builds nicely from from that kind of like, hey, you know, no no commitment, no no names, no pack drill. Let's see how we go. No harm, no foul. Through to okay, I feel like I'm ready to make an offer and try and raise some raise some capital. Um, once that's once that's completed, so you, let's say the, the, and I, I love by the way the description of, of the way you're doing it. It sounds like you know as an intermediary, you're bringing some of that expertise to these founders who otherwise wouldn't know what and how to do it. And even when you're about making a video, I can absolutely see how. And again, I, I'm, I'm going to keep using the the Kickstarter style reference, and my apologies if that's a, if that's insulting. I'm not sure, but just for most of us, have used something like that or seen those sort of videos. And just that very idea of kind of being accessible and available in a way that maybe. If you're if you're a founder, maybe you get it. Maybe you're you're a brand maven. Maybe you love the hell out of this stuff, or maybe you're just it's just not you, and you need that sort of help. So I, I get where that's super useful. Going through then to the completion of the offer. So companies, you know, make the offer. Um, investors hopefully read all the documentation, understand the risks and opportunities. We'll get to those in a sec, and then say, yep, I would like to jump in, and I would like to invest some money. The offer closes. They pay their money. They become shareholders in this new crowdfunded business, or not new business, but you know, uh, newly newly enlarged business. Then what? So you know, as a, as a shareholder, as an ASX shareholder, I can then sell my shares tomorrow. I can hold them for twenty five years. I get regular, you know, half yearly or quarterly reports. I know what to expect. If you're a crowdfunding investor, once the offer closes. What obligations are on the company? What should I expect as an investor? How does that work? And, and what options have I got of actually kind of getting out at some point? 
great question. I'm, look, I'm going to start with the legal requirements and then what we've observed and what we think um, should be in place. But for a company, if you've if you've made a crowdfunding offer and you've had you have crowdfunded investors, um, then you need to prepare an annual report uh, and lodge it with ASIC and also make it available to your investors. The annual report is the financial statements that you usually prepare plus a director's uh, report as well. Um, and it needs to be lodged uh, typically by 31 October every year. Um, that That's the only formal reporting requirement. I, we, we would argue that it's not really enough, right? That's the formal reporting um, cadence, uh, but we think companies should be doing more than that. I'll put that to the side for one moment. Um Companies also become subject to the related party transaction rules in Chapter 2E. So in the same way that a public company would, we think that that's entirely appropriate. They're kind of public companies now um, anyway. Um, The shares are typically issued through an online registry service. So most companies will, um, will use an online registry service to issue the shares now, there's many of these around now, some that support ASX listed clients as well. So a shareholder will be able to log on to the online registry service and view their holdings. But it's an illiquid share. So there is not an organized market that's available for people to trade out of their position. Um, and this needs to be remembered and, and people are reminded of this before they're, they're investing. Um but at the moment, yes, that that that, that is a, a question that needs to be answered is to, you know, rather than expecting investors to wait for some broad-based liquidity event where whether the company lists or it's sold or, um, you know, is there another mechanism um, for for people to, uh, to trade their shares, um, that doesn't exist yet. But that's, you know, that's something that we're working on. So it should be seen as a, a small, probably long-term investment, fewer options to get in and out than, than, than an ASX investment. But that is, the, that is the story of startups generally, right? Venture capital investors similar. They might have a little more, little more muscle, a little more pull. Uh, but generally speaking, they have the same thing. They're waiting for some sort of potential future investment. Ooh, I, I, let, me, let, me, let me throw the devil's advocate for a second. Um, given all those things, uh, small amounts of money probably the idea of equity crowdfunding are businesses that don't have the same disclosure rules don't have the same track record aren't as established or well known as ASX listed companies um, tell me why this should be the the province of the individual retail investor who maybe isn't as sophisticated doesn't have the same ability to understand and analyse these things as a professional as a, as a venture capital investor or something else Obviously, the, the laws were changed in 2018, uh, giving us more flexibility as investors. Potentially, a lot more risk, though, and it might not be suitable for everybody. Where's the where's the uh, line there between? Hey, freedom's great, and oh, I don't know whether you know the average punter who's drinking a couple of beers likes the beer, decides to throw ten grand into the company because I love the beer. All of a sudden, goes, I can't sell, and there's no dividends, and, and maybe maybe the company goes broke. Maybe it's the next twoies, but somewhere in between is is the reality. Um, talk me through that from from a company perspective, from Virtual's perspective, and maybe how you think about your um, the investors that you're lining up with these companies in this context. It's a great question, and it's something that the government and stakeholders um, wrestled with a lot before introducing the legislation. Mm. And um, there's a few safeguards that are just built into into the regime. Um, mm. The you know referred to the offer document. So this is a prospectus-like document. Um, the directors and senior managers of a company making an offer, 
um, they're liable for what they put into that document. And the document needs to be uh, prepared to the retail standard. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, misleading and deceptive disclosure, um, meeting the minimum content requirements. So, you know, describing the business model, including financial statements, how you're talking about prospective financial information, what might happen in the future it all needs to be viewed through that lens of the retail standard. Now, if we're looking at, you know, an unregulated information memorandum, which can still be offered to a retail investor, just fewer of them, um, you know, you're in the territory of five-year forecasts and, you know, a bunch of things that wholesale investors expect. But you're right, like wholesale and professional investors should be able to test companies on, on on these things, our role as the intermediary is to make sure that things are fairly presented, you know, based on our objective review and, and testing all of the, the directors and senior managers to make sure that they're of good fame and character and their background checks uh, check out and, and whatnot. The other features are, look, there's a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, risk warning disclosure. Uh, I think, you know, from that person seeing an advertisement to ultimately investing, I think they have to acknowledge a risk warning, you know, like six times before they've invested. Um, and there is cooling off rights as well. So, you know, everyone that invests has five business days to change their mind. Um, and this is important too, because, you know, the offers are, are closing, you know, faster and faster. Um, so, you know, we're seeing deals that are closing in a few hours or a few days, um, so there is this concern that, you know, there's hype and, and people kind of, uh, you know, getting swept up in this, uh, fear of missing out. Um, but there are five business days for people to change their minds. Um, so, you know, that's, I suppose, a counterbalance to, uh, you know, to some of those, those concerns. I think I'd say this, this is a risk, this is a risky asset class, like inherently, you know, small businesses, um, not all of them will succeed and, and achieve all of the things that they want to, um, but it's, it's risk and reward. And um, this, I would say, is a far better way to incubate these businesses, the, the some of them that do end up doing more sophisticated things and ending up on ASX, because, you know, what we've observed is, the, the gulf or the jump from being a small business to then being a listed business before crowdfunding was was, was too great. And uh, it meant that, you know, we haven't had as many good opportunities come through. But what we're seeing now is businesses crowdfunding, you know, dealing with uh, a regulatory light environment, but still rules and compliance that they need to, and it's a more graduated way for them to go on and do a more sophisticated thing in the future. Virtual has a as as a market uh, intermediary. I think you've used the word. I'll, I'll, I'll use your word rather than rather than use other words that may have legal meanings that I don't intend to to make. Um, uh, you know, you're obviously the more successful money you raise, the more successful virtual is. I assume you don't, I don't know if you, you don't have to share whether you clip the ticket or whether you uh, run on a fixed fee. If, if that's important, feel free to share, but feel free to not share as well. Um, you know, is, how do you how do we ensure Dracula's not in charge of the blood bank here, right? If you, if you guys are making money based on how much money you raise, you go there and say, well, kind of, sure, we'll try and make it look good. But man, I, I don't want to knock back a, a raising over here because I could make X dollars from that particular raise. Um, how, how do you guys make sure 
I guess legally upfront, but just just as a, as an organisation from a brand perspective, uh, that you remain on the side of the good guys. I imagine if you have two, three, or four of your companies you raise for go broke or something goes wrong, it kind of tarnishes you guys. On the other hand, tempting to kind of say, well, we're a startup and we're you know we're, we want to make money here. We're trying to raise as much money and can make as many connections as possible. How do you how do you think through that challenge? Look, our fees are transparent. Um, they're, they're required to be. So um, cool. we charge uh, about $2,800 in setup costs, so $900 to run that expression of interest campaign I mentioned and $1,900 to review and publish an offer document. It's pretty cheap. If I, I mean, if, I, if I'm a company, I can, if for 2,800 bucks, I can get to that point, that's a, that's a pretty attractive offer if I'm, if, I, if I'm looking to raise some capital. It, it, it costs us a lot more than $3,000, you'd argue, to get a company to the starting gates, <laughs> which is yeah. why we charge mainly yeah. on success. So we charge 6% um, of the total approved investment as a success fee, but only if an offer is successful. Um, I, th- I think it's been the right fee structure because we've wanted to make this as open and accessible to as many businesses as possible. But to answer your question... Um, we are the gatekeeper, not only to the virtual platform, but to the crowdsource funding industry. And um, that that role and responsibility is at the forefront of our minds always. Now, if um, we, you know, uh, kind of, you know, derelict in our duty, um, that we, we won't be around long-term and we're playing the long game. We, we, we feel that we're be- building a vital piece of infrastructure for the Australian economy to incubate these small businesses. Um, and look, I'd, I'd say that the public helps us with this a lot. So every offer has a regulated discussion forum. This was a really kind of amazing innovation when the legislation came in. Um, we, you know, get people, the general public that will kind of contact us if they've got concerns about an offer that's EOI stage, that there's something that we need to know. There've been situations like that where, you know, that's kind of put us on a train of inquiry and we've declined to host an offer for a company. Um, this is something where, you know, our role is the intermediary. Yes, you know, it is the company that engages us, but um, our role as, as a financial services licensee and as the intermediary is, is supreme. I like it. That's exactly what you'd want to hear. I, I, that's a, I, I, look, I'm no expert in this area, but that um, that funding model sounds pretty good. I think if, I, if I'm a business trying to raise some capital, uh, three grand, less than three grand to get out of the starting gates, and then work out whether there's something there is a, a pretty low a pretty low bar. I think it's a it's a pretty good approach you guys are taking. Matt, let, let's let, we've talked a lot about the investing and about the process because I think a lot of our listeners will care about virtual the business, but also what virtual's offering. And I'm sure you won't mind talking a little bit about that because it might uh, it might raise some interest. Well, let's get back to the business itself, mate. Um, so four-ish years in, what's been some of the biggest challenges of of this journey? So entrepreneur, you know, actually you've, you've been through, you've been through it a couple of times. Uh, the, uh, the the food festival gave you some uh, some training wheels, I suppose. They came off with virtual, and you're off and away. What are some of the challenges that you've come through that you've kind of either either still uh, uh, thankfully bad memories, but now memories or, or good memories? But what's that process been like of of zero to where you are now with a hundred million dollars raised for your your businesses? We've had growing pains from day one, and it's okay. pa- partly been because um, of our inability to raise capital in the early days using the old framework. Like that, that, <laughs> that, that is that is the art flourity, isn't it? It, it is absolutely. And um, I mean, yeah, we've always done more or done a lot with with very little. Um, and I'd say, you know, looking back, it's actually been amazing because. Um, 
we, we, we have a profitable business, uh, which is, you know, look, we see a lot of startups and, and businesses and it's pretty uncommon, um, particularly for a financial services business of, of our size. Um, but it's just been through, you know, discipline and, um, and, you know, hard work, but also building out systems and processes and looking for efficiency at every point. Um, COVID was a real challenge. I, I mean, I know everyone's got their own um, experience with COVID. Um, yeah, look, it was it was hard for us initially, but then ultimately it was um, it was a strong tailwind for us because what we do uh, became far more interesting to businesses being an entirely online process when people couldn't get out there and raise capital in the old way, which is networking and coffees and things like that. Um, you know, we became uh, interesting to a vast number of businesses that might not have considered us before. And then I think being able to demonstrate that even in, you know, unprecedented, uncertain times, we were able to deliver capital to businesses and get them through um, has really kind of validated uh, the government's decision to put crowdfunding in place, but but also our, our business and, and why we exist. Uh, so, yeah, but the, the capital... Um, the capital point, I'll just kind of finish on this. Like we, we solved recently because we raised capital on our own platform. Um, there you go. Proof of concept right there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, so, you know, yeah, we're kind of going through all of the things that or went through all of the things that uh, that our clients go through and, and they're about to go go through this again in terms of managing our investors and and, and experiencing all of the things that um, that a crowdfunded business does. I like that. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> proof of concept. A question for you. Did you, just on that concept, as, as, a, as a business raising capital on, on the virtual platform, did that give you any particular insights into the process? Were anything you kind of thought, man, that sucks, or gee, that must be hard, or that's amazing, or you know, does, it, does being on both sides of that fence actually make it better, easier, harder to, to run the business as a result? Oh, it was an amazing experience, both, all of the above. Um, I, I, there were times when I sat back and I just had to say, you know, to Josh, our CTO, you know, Kelly, um, Chief Legal Officer, I was just like, it is amazing what we've built. Like, it is unbelievable because, you know, um, there were so many people that just became aware of us through responding to a Facebook ad and then viewing a webinar and really, and look, I know that retail investors are the unique feature of this regime, but it must be said, wholesale investors, many of them are investing in these opportunities through crafting and, you know, not insignificant amounts either, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in these businesses. And what they're telling us is this is a great opportunity for them to become aware of businesses they might not have otherwise been able to to see, but also the the comfort that they're getting of investing, you know, with more kind of regulatory oversight, you know, the, the perceived, you know, comfort and, uh, and and additional transparency that that brings. But in terms of improvements for the platform, absolutely. We, I saw a bunch of things that, uh, uh, you know, as as a user, just the, the, this would be so much more useful or that would be so much more useful. So, yeah, there's a long list of feature requests that the tech team are working on. <laughs> I think it's smart, mate. I'm always, I'm always, you know, 
in, in, I used to work in retail a million years ago and I was going through uni and they had a thing called shop blindness. By the time you've been there that many times, you don't see it the way that other people see it. You're kind of so used to what's mm. going on. Being, you know, thinking as a customer, walking in for the first time and trying to do the whole, if I was coming in here, how would I see this? Um, mm. There's a lot of value in, in, in having that experience. But we'll get to our favourite four questions to finish off in a second. One, one last one for you about the business. Um, what's the, think, put your, put your uh, grab your crystal ball out of your, out of your back pocket and, and look five, seven, ten years into the future. What is, what, you know, obviously so much is evolving. This is a, a four-year-old regulatory regime and you guys are making every post a winner so far with 100 million bucks in, in capital raises, I said. Um, but take us forward five or, or, or 10 years. What is, what is the virtual of 2027 20, or 2032 look like? What are you hoping to be able to achieve over that sort of time frame? By then, we've built out an ecosystem of support for uh, startups and investors. And I would argue that right now we're helping um, solve the the primary capital piece. So businesses raising capital by issuing new securities, but we, we need to improve the flows of communication uh, between companies and their investors. Um, you know, companies want to do this, but they don't know how to do this well. So there's an opportunity for us to build out products and services to improve that. And doing that well, I, I think, um, has so many benefits for companies revisiting how they're measuring impact because there are a lot of, you know, impact-focused businesses that uh, that we've hosted offers for and their investors are, you know, interested in their impact. That's many cases the reason why they've invested in them. Um, we talked about secondary uh, secondary markets. So, you know, companies being able to uh, provide liquidity to their investors, but also raise capital more efficiently, but on terms that are more suitable to them and their, their stage. I think we can all agree that, you know, the ASX, um, the, look, the ASX is, uh, you know, one of the best, most highly regarded markets in the world. And the burden, the compliance burden is, as it should be, very, very high. Um, but there must be another solution, you know, another offering for a business that isn't at the size and scale to to deal with um, with all of that. So reimagining um, liquidity, and then finally, just just the infrastructure, just make it easy uh, for for people to find these opportunities and invest in them, because this is the key to supporting entrepreneurialism in this country, and I would say like driving um, our economy. Um, into new areas uh, is we need to get Australians thinking about investing in businesses rather than, you know, investing in blue chip stocks, um, property, um, you know, and, and, and crypto, which is great to demonstrate an increasing risk, risk appetite, but it's not productive to the economy. You know, I'd rather see most Australians talking about the startups that they invested in and the people that they're employing and how it's going to push our economy into new and productive areas. Very cool. I love that. That's a really, really nice way to finish off the, almost finish off our chat. Thank you, Matt. Um, as, as we do finish, let's go to our favorite four questions. Uh, our listeners tend to be, well, obviously podcast listeners. They're also probably, we know, they're readers and, and they watch lots of plenty of streaming television. Uh, what are you reading and watching at the moment, mate? What's on your bedside table? What's on your Netflix account? What do you, what's, what's on the podcast machine that you, you use? Um, what's, what's kind of keeping you interested and occupied? I read and watch a lot. Um, I just finished watching the the last season of Ozark uh, on Netflix, and uh, yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's great. So I mean, but anyone that's watched it will will agree with me. I think that as far as uh, season endings go, I, I don't think you could top it. So it's a great show. Um, 
In terms of what I'm reading, um, I haven't started reading it yet, but uh, Killer Thinking, it's the latest book by Tim Duggan. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I received it um, uh, in the mail last week, so I'm looking forward to uh, to starting that. Tim uh, Tim's first book was Cult Status, uh, which he released um, back in 2020, and uh yeah, a, a, an amazingly relevant book for us, for us and many of the companies that we support. So I'm, he's a great writer and um, and a really good person. So I'm looking forward to to reading that book. Nice tip. I'll check that one out myself. Thank you. Uh, what trends are you watching? Obviously, it's crowdfunding, but but more broadly, if you think about kind of what's going on, whether it's in your job, in your business, or in the world, um, things are changing, and and the sorts of businesses you're going to have come into your door are businesses that are probably going to be capitalising on creating, uh, surfing the waves of these new trends. What are some of the things you're kind of seeing happening around the world around you? Yeah. Look. Um the the rise and importance of retail investors. Um, I know we've seen this a lot through uh, COVID over the last few years, but I do remember a time when you know people just thought that retail investors were insignificant, um, and that it was all about institutional investors. and And, and that's changed. Uh, that's changed. I think forever now, and um, that kind of plays into what we do. I, I mentioned crypto and alternative assets. You know, particularly with young people. Um, it's harder and harder for young people to get ahead, you know, housing affordability. So it is natural that people are going to be looking out to, you know, other ways to uh, build their wealth um, and get ahead. And again, I think that bodes well for what we do. Um, you know, startups and SMEs is an alternative asset class. Um, and then just the war for talent. Uh, it's... Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's going to get more and more fierce. Um, I, I think just even in our business, you know, hiring people, hiring the right people. Um, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that we're going to see some wages growth in this country. Um, there's been a lot, a lot, you know, spoken about that in the election. As an employer, I, you know, probably wouldn't be wanting to say that, but I think it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be right. a good thing. It has to be um, with inflation as high as it is. Um, but I think over time, it's really the businesses that are able to hire, attract and retain, uh, the best people are the ones that are, that are going to win. And, um, if businesses aren't thinking about their hiring and sourcing strategies, then, um, it's at their peril. Love it. That's a really good point. Uh, yeah, quick tangent on the, on the wage thing. If you want a growing economy and you don't have growing wages, the two are incompatible. The only, the only way you do is debt and that's a, that's a fast train to nowhere. So as you say, mm. if, if you want a growing economy, if you want, if you want a more prosperous uh, startup economy, develop, you know, establish business, uh, they can only grow if people are paid more to spend more. That's how this thing works other than, other than asset putting on the plastic. So uh, I completely agree with you for a whole lot of different reasons, including that one. Uh, mate, uh, you're obviously four years in, but this is not the first rodeo. You've been, you've been through uh, other stuff. Startups and other other parts of your life. So I would I would, let's let's make it an entrepreneurial question, and then you can feel free to pivot if you want. What advice would you give someone uh, who was looking to start their own business? Understand your why. I, I, I think like it's um, the the thing that I've found. Um, like it's really hard uh, starting a business, starting something, being responsible for other people, and. The thing that will keep you going is your passion and your purpose and understanding your why. And um, I, I love my job. And, you know, I think with anything, there's an element of opportunism, right? And that needs to be there, like that there's got to be some gain or, you know, I've spotted something that perhaps others haven't yet. 
that's probably the threshold issue for thinking about starting something. But then you need to start thinking about executing and do I care about the Why am I doing this? I think is the question that needs to be answered because um, if you're not, you know, super committed to it, then those moments, those sometimes existential moments where, you know, you, you just don't know wh- wh- why am I in this situation? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, it's un- understanding, you know, understanding the answer to that question, what what kind of will, that, that, that will keep you going. And, and for me, um, with Birchall, I, I really believe that we have the opportunity to, you know, shape the economy and really make a difference. And personally, I, I, I love that. I love seeing the positive impact that we've had on businesses and, you know, and investors. And um, I can't imagine doing anything else. Very cool, mate. I love that answer. Let's finish off with the last one, which is my favorite. I'm an incurable optimist. Uh, I think you have to be, if you're going to be an investor, if you're going to be a, an entrepreneur, uh, or maybe you don't. Maybe you'll tell me otherwise. But if I ask you, you can answer. Matt Vitale, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about Australia and our future. And uh, I think um, it's been tough the last few years, but it's, you know, w- we, we really are the lucky country. And um, I think we're heading into a, a big period of change, um, you know, economically um, and politically, um, not just domestically, but, but in a global sense. And I think we need to be more open. Um, I think Australia needs to be uh, a bigger, a bigger country, um, and open to bringing more, more people in, um, and you know, really kind of building, um, building on this great society that we've built. And I know that it's it's probably hard for some people listening to a lot of people talk about the election and things like that. And you know, there's a lot of people that are upset with, and quite rightly, at a bunch of things. Um, but things could be a lot worse and uh, we just need to kind of support each other and get together. And I'm really op- optimistic about Australia and the opportunity that's ahead of us. I love it, mate. That is a wonderful way to, to finish off. Before I do let you go there, how can people keep in touch with the virtual story or with you on, say, social? Or what's the best way to keep in touch with what's going on for you and, and for virtual in general? Birchall, www.birchall.com, B-I-R-C-H-A-L. Um, there's there's a good way to kind of reach out to the campaign management team if you're thinking about raising capital through us or having a look at some of the investment opportunities we've got live. Um, otherwise, in terms of social media, I'm pretty good on uh, on LinkedIn, um, not, not really that good on the others. So always happy to chat with people <laughs> and, um, yeah, reach out. Matt Vitale, the co-founder of Birchall. Thanks for joining The Good Oil. Thanks so much, Scott. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden and imaged by Link Kelly. Listener.